0: Please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I chat with Jamie Nemsis and Drew Meredith of Model Partners Financial Planning. We talk about risk profiling and using that to set your strategic asset allocation and tactical asset allocation, how you can tilt your portfolio, hedge your portfolio and generally build a portfolio statement and construct and manage your portfolio throughout market cycles. This is a fascinating chat because we reflect on some of the moves that the guys made during COVID and also as we think about rising inflation or potential rising inflation and rising rates. It's a fascinating conversation and I'm sure the guys will be back to join me in the future. As always, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Drew Meredith and Jamie Nemesis from Mortal Partners, My Partners in Crime, for today's podcast episode. Thanks for joining me on the show. Drew, um, I know you've been unwell well the last few days, mate, so I know you're making the extra effort this Friday morning. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, and um, and Jamie, second time on the podcast. I know. Drew and I have done a few, but um, you're looking good, mate. It's good to have you back. I'm looking good because this is audio only, right? <laughs> <laughs> um today's podcast we're going to cover um basically how you guys think about risk profiles and then how that feeds into um building a portfolio or constructing a portfolio from the top down so um, that strategic asset allocation and then how you tilt portfolios because i know we got some good examples to throw around um particularly coming out of covid um, and just in general i guess um you guys have been doing this long enough so lots of value to add um Drew, throw it over to you first, mate, uh, straight in the deep end. Can you just explain, I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with like what a risk profile is, but how do you go about determining um, a risk profile when you meet a client or when you just come across an investor?
1: Yeah, so I think it's probably one of the more complex parts of providing advice. You know, you a lot of people assume you answer a few questions and that's your risk profile, but... I think anyone that stops there, it's not enough. It's an, it's an evolving issue. Um, we think really risk profiling is about finding out your tolerance to lose money almost, <laughs> for lack of a better way of thinking about Family. it. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think like most things in finance, it's an imperfect science. So, you know, you start with a. We, we think we use what, what the, best, the best of breed risk profiling software that tries to take into account behavioural issues uh, you know issues and biases that we have that's a, a platform called uh Finometrica, i think jamie um but for us it's about understanding the objectives and also the person and their experiences over an extended period of time rather than just a once-off um particularly i mean you, jamie will probably explain that your risk profile changes in the middle of a in the middle of a crisis or in the middle of a bull market
2: Correct. Yeah. Trying to ascertain uh, someone's real risk profile is incredibly hard and it starts with, you know, it's essentially about knowing them, knowing their situation um, and knowing how they'll react. So the risk profile uh, tool is a great way to start, but it depends on their level of capital, their level of knowledge. And, you know, most people in an up market are bullish and most people in a down market are bearish. Um, and So, you know, we constantly reassess risk profiles for clients. Um, there's also a need as well. We've we come across a lot of clients that have a need, that being an income need in retirement, and they they have a, a limited um, everyone has a limited amount of capital it doesn't matter who you are you've got a certain amount of capital now if those two objectives don't match then typically what you would need to do is run a portfolio that's more aggressive but if you're if if and that that's the issue right if you run a more aggressive portfolio mm. to achieve their objectives but their risk pro- profile is more conservative what is the right answer the right answer is spend less money but most clients don't respond to that very well so you know um it's it's a it's a constant and continual balance in terms of assessing clients risks and attitude and as drew said it
0: changes right and you have to as an advisor right like the risk um kind of has to be the setting right in that instance like where you've got competing priorities because surely you can't well I, i would think you can't really move them further up the risk curve um For the sake of reaching those goals or like how do you what are some of the things that you would do or implement to kind of have that trade-off with clients that discussion
1: there's an important thing that we've gone through recently which is having informed consent so if you are suggesting someone needs to take more risk to achieve their objectives they have to be completely understand the additional risk that they're taking on what their potential losses are um, rather than yeah just suggesting something that. Forget, don't don't challenge their their objectives and just suggest something that's a high risk because in in theory it will give them a higher return. Um,
2: so it's easy. It's so easy to lose focus for investors. And when we talk investors, Drew and I talk investors. we typically talk to investors plus fifty, and we typically deal with those clients until they pass away. Right. So they mm. typically have a pool of capital. We're not talking about accumulators right at the moment, and that that's a majority of our client base. And the way that people see their portfolios and it, most people see their portfolios is just a number on the, at the bottom, you know, we write fantastic quarterly reports that, that, that go through and we can talk about what it goes through, but you know, they're, they're 25 to 30 pages and, the last page has their total valuation of their portfolio. And most people flip to the last page and then they say, yeah, read it back to the front. <laughs> you know, and they assess it was at higher or lower than last quarter. And if it was higher, they put it away and don't read it. If it's lower, they probably call us up and go, well, what's going on? You know, um,
1: so no question, the one the one investment has gone down as well. (laughs)
2: So, So, what you can do for clients that are a little bit more nervy is get them to focus on different things. And one of the things we've been doing for a long time now, Drew, is getting clients to, especially in retirement, is focus on what the portfolio might produce as income compared to what they need, and then focus on how many years of cash reserves do they need to hold to feel comfortable. You know, so if they want uh, $80,000 and the portfolio um, produces $60,000, there's a $20,000 shortfall, say that's a $30,000 shortfall, and uh, in a market downturn that might fall to a $40,000 hole, then if we hold five years' worth of that, do they feel comfortable? Or 10 years' worth of that, do they feel more comfortable? And then get them to focus on different things rather than the last page of the report. And if you can say yeah. we're always holding, you know, five to seven years worth of cash or the cash gap, then typically they'll allow a, a more risky, a, no, without, they're happy to take a little bit more risk because they're yeah. focused on a different thing.
0: Do you find when clients come to you, um, because I, I normally deal with accumulators, right? And you guys um, deal with both. Um, do you find when clients come to you and they're, you know, closing in on retirement or just in retirement, they've got these large balances. Do you find they've thought that way? Do you think think that they put that cash aside knowing that this is going to cover me for X number of years or, you know, is it really just kind of all over the place?
1: They tend to be more conservative than what even they think. So part of the risk profiling questionnaire we use, ask them what they think their score would be on a scale of zero to 100 and pretty much every single one, uh, their result is more conservative than what they think it is. Um, oh, right. And I think we've we've studied behavioral uh, finance recently, too. And I think loss aversion, um, which is what you're talking about, is that they're more afraid of losing money than they are of missing out on returns generally. So it's it's almost starts with a negative capital protection footing. I
2: mean, we're totally off track, but that's exactly right. Most clients come with a portfolio that is a lot, lot more risky than their risk profile, Um, but they don't perceive it to be that risky. Um, And then they really don't know the performance of their portfolio over the last seven years. So, you know, they've, they've had different pots of money come in rollers of superannuation inheritances you know retirement benefits and they can't tell you that they average a five percent return or a seven percent return or a yeah four percent return so our job is to you know find where they're comfortable that achieves their objectives and educate them to the degree that they need educated education so some people will come and they'll already get it right some totally understand others um don't sometimes that re-education has to happen in crises or when one partner dies but you know it's essentially a process that we go through with each each group you know what's your risk profile what's your tolerance to risk watch how they act in in market downturns and we're going to talk about market downturns later um yep. you know, that kind of anxiety builds if you don't do anything in a market downturn Um, and it evaporates if you actually do something, even if you're buying something, you know, so.
1: I think the industry has got too focused on the portfolio as the outcome. So you can see it, major funds everywhere. You basically, you answer all these questions, you either end up in a conservative balanced or a growth option. Um, But it's, as you can tell from the discussion, it's far more nuanced than, you know, fitting everyone into two or three buckets. Um, Yeah. It's more about one, what returns do you need? You know, if if you've got fifteen million dollars and you only need one percent from term deposits, well what's why would we tell you to put it into anything but term deposits? But not many people have fifteen million and term deposits at one percent isn't a lot yeah. uh, either. So, you know, you've got gradual risk taking from that point onwards, but it's important to match that up with what you're seeking, otherwise when volatility does come and you're more exposed than you probably should have been, um that's when bad decisions or emotional decisions are made.
0: Speaking So speaking of like the interplay between risk profiles and um, SAA or strategic asset allocation, um, I know you guys, because you guys have hundreds of clients, right? Um, so you go about effectively building these buckets. Um, Jamie, you and I talked yesterday about how you think about portfolio construction taking the Kind of the best of breed in each of the buckets um and then you kind of mix and match can you just give us like the overview of the the saa approach and how you think about those buckets
2: well, it's really important you have a framework in all this so the framework that we're using is called strategic asset allocation and essentially it's a process of splitting your investments into two so that would be your what we call your growth assets and the other would be your defensive assets in defensive assets we have three subcategories that being cash eg no market volatility available all the time um, or available within a week and then you've got fixed income uh, which essentially provides exposure to the bond market, uh, typically longer duration, and provides income. And uh, the third category is something called defensive alternatives, which has got that uh, non-market, non-market correlated risk. Typically pro- produces income, um, not a lot of volatility. So when we go through risk profiling process will determine how much in the defensive component of one's portfolio um and then we have growth assets and our growth asset categories and these slightly change depending on which advisors you use but our categories is australian shares international shares and then uh growth alternatives so the um some some advisors would have property at at the bottom there but we put them all in growth alternatives, so in each category um, then we decide what investments go into to each category. Uh, each category has got a number beside it, so we might say, hey, your defensive assets are thirty percent and that's broken up into five percent cash if that's the right number for the client, and then fifteen uh, percent in fixed income and defense and defensive alts might be 10 and we use that as a guide of where a portfolio sits every time we review it each quarter or each um, each half year and then anything that's outside plus or negative um you know soft is kind of two and a half percent but five percent we would automatically be rebalancing it back or we automatically we would be recommending we balance it back We also run a tactical asset allocation, which is kind of strategic is more or less a 15 to 20 year view. Tactical asset allocation is if you had a one to three year view on something. So maybe at the moment, um, and I think this was on the agenda to talk about, if you were fundamentally worried about higher rates because of inflation, then you'd. You wouldn't want too much in your fixed income component, which had long duration. So you might take, you know, you might take ten percent or of the allocation that was in fixed income and put it into your defensive alts, where you don't have duration risk. So if you get higher rates, then you're not essentially going to lose capital. So you've got your, you got your SAA, then TAA.
0: So what would be? defensive alts it kind of sounds like this um, mysterious bucket to a lot of people that don't really know about it. What would be an example of a defensive alt uh, in terms of product or in terms of you know asset class? Just any example would help.
1: We're probably a bit more conservative. I know a lot of <clears throat> groups maybe who knows who it is. Um, they basically put anything that is mortgage like so you know a, a term deposit is a form of debt. Uh, to a bank yeah. so anything that's similar to that it could be property-backed debt mortgage-backed debt corporate but you know loans to corporates um there's some uh yeah different different grade rating, rating levels of different bonds as well um so a lot of people would put them just straight into the fixed interest bucket but we think it's important to differentiate between there are slightly different risk levels there um yes yeah, a perfect example
0: would be corporate bonds mm. so like australian corporate bonds or well- international as well
1: yeah primarily um, primarily yeah australian but really you can include anything in there that isn't isn't a triple ha- a rated government government debt basically
2: yeah typically in that bucket there would be floating rate versus fixed rate we would have things like gold and credit and absolute return funds and generally the things that fit in there have to meet you know a, a kind of another framework and that framework would be around Volatility. So you want the volatility to be low, and you want the drawdown from top to bottom, e.g., the highest the value has been to what it could fall in a crash, to be kind of limited as well. We we roughly mm. maximum will ever go in investments is ten and ten. At ten being vol, that's monthly vol. Um, and 10 uh, percent from top to bottom so typically okay. they're a lot better than that and typically they're providing some kind of yield um to the defensive bucket
1: uh less correlated so the key with the alternatives buckets is that they're not they don't move the same way that the fixed income and the equity buckets do so you think fixed income it's usually full of government bonds that are fixed rate long term, seven, 10, 15 year government debt. So if interest rates rise, they'll perform poorly. This bucket is really talking about if interest rates rise, they'll perform, they won't be impacted basically, if that makes
0: sense. Yeah, it does. How about, so how did that bucket for you guys react during COVID? Cause I know like, I don't know if um, my hybrids fit into this bucket as well, but um, you know, there was a fair bit of volatility there that we saw during COVID. Um, how did that? How did that kind of fare? Um, throughout Let's talk about
2: thing. this rebalance. So the re—I think it feeds really well if we talk about rebalancing, right? So yeah. the concept of rebalancing is always uh, really simply. You're, you when you rebalance, you say your equities has run have run really well. You're selling things at a profit. And typically you're recycling them into other categories that haven't done as well, right? So it's, yeah, you know, selling high and buying low, essentially what the rebalancing process is. And it's incredibly important to rebalance your portfolio. And there's lots of, lots of articles about rebalancing, um, on a regular basis, six monthly seems enough, um, uh, 12, 12 monthly, not, not quite enough, but, to maximize, you know, risk-adjusted returns. The thing that Drew and I have learned over, you know, I'm 45, turning 46, so 25 years I've been doing this, is the rebalance is even more important, is the most important in a crisis. So most advisors would not go to their client when the client is fearing most and saying, this is awesome. We should sell all the assets that haven't fallen and buy all the assets that have fallen, which is fundamentally what rebalancing is, right? It's a nicer term, rebalancing. So rebalancing, and we did it in 2008 and we did it last March or Ma- uh, March, April, the, the confidence to go and rebalance where you're just, you know, you're uh, selling things that haven't fallen and you're buying things that have, have fallen. Um, so then i think that's we, we then could talk about what we did um and this is not just about waddle sure. partners we're a bit different because we are got a we kind of look at the world from a top down perspective but also bottom up so those actions that we did in our portfolio do you want to talk about them drew um
1: yeah i think in you know relating it back to the defensive alternatives question we actually didn't have a lot in there at the time. I um, think there were one or two investments, uh, and we were very much more so in the fixed interest and and government bonds, given what the conditions looked like. Um, you know, central banks were reducing rates and implementing QE, um, and the result was uh, similar to, to the defensive alternatives. There, there's this growth alternatives bucket that also has a preference to or a requirement that you don't lose money when when uh, markets fall. So. What we did in about March, or April March, April, and July last year was identify that the equity component had fallen significantly. So if you looked at an asset allocation, it was clear the alternatives had either stayed the same or gone up and the bonds had generally gone up, fixed interest had generally gone up as well. Um, so tactically sold portion of those assets, I think it was about only about 5 to 10% of the portfolio, Jamie. Yep. Total um, portfolio. And allocated it. So on the top level took 5-10% from those, allocated it into global uh, equities, domestic equities, and actually defensive alternative, so credit, because all three of them sold off um, uh, credit less so, but equity significantly, as everyone knows, you know, it's no surprise there. Mm. Um, we wouldn't do it because we thought markets were going to recover in six weeks or well, eight weeks like they did. <laughs> uh, it certainly helped, but um, we can go to the, the micro level so that's like top down and then from a
2: bottom up we you know in our preference share that's essentially how we get a lot of the fixed income portion of our portfolio preference shares listed we directly buy them we saw there was um a mispricing what we thought was a mispricing of anything that had a long duration preference share was being valued down 10 or 15 percent from its par value where the short
1: five or six year maturity
2: yeah, so six years to mature. They, they, they were trading at a big discount because there was lots of uncertainty. We had a lot of um, short-term preference shares we kind of preferen- that were maturing in the next one to kind of two and a half years. And even that they traded down a little bit, not to the same degree as the longer duration preference shares. So we just sw- simply switched them. You know sold the short or the long now that's really unusual for a financial planner to get into that detail the result was they all trade pretty much back at par or both post par,
1: yeah, yeah
2: yeah so you know from a client's perspective rather than a a, a two-year preference share going from 97 dollars to a to, to 100 we've been able to sell at 97 buy something at 88 or 90 and it's gone back to 100. so there you know that was A move. Um, That was kind of a decision at the time and we saw the opportunity. We also have a currency um, policy uh, internally and we've had this for a long period of time and Mm. that just says that we hedge um, currency when it's uh, too um, standard deviations from long-term mean, which basically means currency is about 30, 73 cents is long-term mean. So if you mm. two standard deviations away, we hedge it up or we unhedge un- it. So currency dropped to 55 and a half cents. And because it's not a, it, it's, it's, um, it's it's a policy, it's, it's not a decision. We just said, okay, we're, we've committed to this so for the last 20 years, it works. So let's hedge everything up we could. So obviously added enormous value. So in terms of what we did, it wasn't a lot. It was three or four movements, but the value that that created for clients is substantial. You know, um, mm.
0: how did you get? The, how did you hedge? So how did you hedge? Did you just switch into the hedged products, or yeah, so like hedge funds, hedge versions of funds, and
1: S and P five hundred ETF switching from unhedged to hedged um most managed funds that aren't some are actively hedged obviously you can't control those but anything that had a hedged option we basically
0: just switched it in the middle of the i think the dollar was at 60 cents or something um Uh, what are the types of sorry jamie you mentioned the types of preference shares you mentioned preference shares that you bought directly before What, what what would be an example of the preference shares that
2: We typically only buy bank preference shares um, because bank preference shares have got APRA looking at the capital adequacy of the underlying company. So if you buy a corporate preference share, they only have to announce to the ASX twice a year and, you know, who who knows. So where it's constantly monitored if it's a bank. So we only hold, mainly we only hold bank preference shares. So in each bank, you know. Top four, and they they it, they essentially have a whole series of them. So you can pick your series and your maturity, um, and your That'd credit be the most rating. So.
1: Clear arbitrage, I think we'd ever
2: seen. But that's what happens in a crisis, right? When markets go to crisis, you have to somehow have a framework that you can go to clients and say, okay, this is a great time to rebalance and then put a set of recommendations to them. If they saw it one by one, they might've do it. But this concept of rebalancing and crises is really crises really work. And I think that's, we, we kind of, there's a guy called, Justin Pascoe, that used to be the CEO, CIO of VFMC, and now he's a head of equities at um, Australian Equity, at Australian Super, and he's an incredibly smart guy. And I saw him present once, and he talked about never um, understanding the embedded call option that cash or non-market. Um, investments have and the example would be if you had managed money for the last 20 years and you had it in cash for the 20 years apart from big market corrections and you just bought the you know the say the uh, the all odds and you held them for held it for two years and then put it back in cash and you did the same put it back in the cash so over the 20 years you would only have uh, your money exposed to equities for um two times uh and for four years out of the 20 then and you picked up the cash rate for the whole period your portfolio return would be substantial you know it would be probably better than any other pension fund around over that period of time and you've only held market exposure so understanding that cash does more than just produce Mm. a little bit of income all these things that we hold defensive alts and fixed income hold a different role in the portfolio and the role is really this embedded call option to buy cheap stuff and that extends to when you get crisis like last year um where you you see every corporate asex listed company raise capital now they seem to raise capital at the most ridiculous times and they raise it at substantial discounts. Now, when that happens, you if you're an active investor, you want to be able to have cash to buy all these things that go and sell. And we're not talking about small companies. We're not talking about micro companies. We're talking about ASX 50, ASX 100 leaders. All the banks raise capital at you know pretty close to the bottom. So if you don't have cash or things you can sell, and and buy these opportunities you miss out on a great opp- opportunity to you know, to 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 maximize your long-term returns mm.
1: for us we we start with we call it an investment policy or a, an investment policy statement that kind of has driven every pension fund every family office every maybe not hedge funds, but every successful investor, basically it has a framework to help make decisions. So when we speak with clients, we build that for them as the first kind of discussion point. And you're negotiating the key points about it. It talks about the amount of positions in your portfolio, the policy on hedging, even things like your responsible investment views or your ethical preferences. And then it and guides the decisions that happen on a quarterly basis or in crisis. So, you know, you're not just sitting there making it up in the middle of a crisis, you, you're prepared and you have a, a strategy to deal with it.
2: Um, and then you go back to amend it, right? If you're not sure, if something's gone wrong, go back and amend your investment strategy. It only has to be, you know, half a dozen pages, if that. But, you know, it's just a constant learning of how to be a better investor is yeah. this main document called investor, you know, uh, IPS, investment Every there. Every
1: investor, pretty much every person we meet lacks that structure or even having any Mm. strategy at all every portfolio i mean probably a lot of advisors every portfolio looks pretty similar um you know all a mix of popular things but no actual structure you know why did you add this why have you got a random credit strategy why have you got
0: there's no overall strategy involved yeah it's a really interesting thing um I, i can't imagine like we tend to write down our rules for investing like as a you know, stock picker or equities focused guy, I we have these vast checklists and rules and filters, whatever, to buy shares and to focus on quality and blah, blah, blah. But then um, coming back, like relating that back to the personal finance strategy overall, um, I don't know many investors that actually adopt like an investment policy statement, uh, write that down and have these re- rules written in advance. Um, and there's some clear... Um, like there's a clear value prop there, right? Like you just that you just met, uh, mentioned, um, having those rules in advance is most important. And Jamie, to your point about like that in, um, embedded call option in cash, that's something that took me a while to kind of wrap my head around as an investor because um, you just see interest rates falling, right? And you think of opportunity cost, and you think, Geez, this sucks. Um, but that's fascinating, right? I guess the, the I guess the key there is um, one of the things that one of the questions people might have is, well you guys made these these great calls during COVID um, and then you cited that the, the other investor who, who brought up the study over 20 years, timing matters, right? Like how do you determine, you've got two standard deviations for FX to go hedge or unhedge. How do you decide when you would take that cash off the sidelines? Like are there predetermined rules that you guys use for that? Is there a framework for that?
2: We at the moment, so we believe in quarterly rebalancing. So we do quarterly reviews and then in crisis. So, you know, as soon as you see those allocations breaking, you know, so if you've said 30% in Aussie shares and it's down to twenty-two and a half or 21, then, you know, it, it's a good indicator. You're not going to get timing 100% right ever. Um, but, you know, you can definitely um, put things in place that helps your return um timing last time last in march uh and april and timing is that horrible word but it's really just being tactical um it worked because as soon as we kind of we didn't even get all the money in markets took off right um in 2007 2008 that wasn't the case i think we rebalanced and it went down further and that's that's harder, you know, you rebalance and then markets go down another 20%. You go, oh, I thought 4,500 was pretty good for the all odds and it's down at three, two. Yeah. And that's where patience and, you know, um, comes into it. Investing and and probably as advisors, we're one step back than we used to be. We used to be really, really active. would know when share prices went up and down and, you know, every announcement on the market. And we're probably one back from that now. Um, Well, I am definitely. And I think that has made me a better advisor because you're going, well, what's the opportunity set here in this market and what looks hot and where should i allocate money versus you know nabs down 42 cents i wonder what's happening there are they going to cut their dividend you know in a portfolio context the bigger top-down moves typically add a lot more value than the, you know a little bit in this and a little bit in that for for, for most investors
0: i think a lot of the the academic literature backs it up right but the portfolio management The SAA is as an explanatory um, factor is so much more powerful than the security selection, right? It's all—it's
1: more about being exposed and staying exposed. So we saw last year if you sold anything, you you cap you capitalise losses and you never recovered. So yeah, SAA is basically a tool to make sure you don't sell when crises happen, um, or you're not selling your your growth component because the power is from the SAA. But making sure you're always exposed to the asset classes that are that are growing Mm. Mm.
2: I think a lot of a lot of um so when you do talk about portfolio build um there's a lot of uns and these are our peers but you know there's a lot of unsophisticated approaches to portfolio build um and that's typically when you get um Uh, Say when we allocate our international share allocation, we have two managers up the top that manage the large cap exposure globally. They're both active. So we're a a house that believes in active investing, adding value, and they have both done that. And then we have a mid cap. We go to mid cap manager. a, a small cap manager, and then we have a tilt to Asia. And then if you looked at the overlap of stocks that you're owning, it's very, very minor. And if you look at the the, the, the five or so portfolio managers, they different. they definitely have different mindsets and they approach it from a different perspective. So
0: that, that's that, how we that do That means it. meeting the fund managers and actually understanding what they do, right? Sure.
2: Yeah. If you don't know, like we, we get paid, a decent fee to provide advice to our clients. So we take the role on of understanding that fund manager, um, as closely and precisely as possible. Sure. We get all the research, right? But, That doesn't really help us. That's outsourcing the obligation that we have, which is a fiduciary obligation to the client to know the investments. So we want to know the portfolio manager. We want to know what they're doing. We want to talk to them. We use, you know, we would use, say, a Morningstar direct to make sure all their holdings, there's no overlap. And and a lot of, you know, a lot of exposure. Last year, you know, and um, we've seen portfolios and they're exposed to three, three, um, fund managers and they're all done phenomenally well but if you pulled off the lid they're all exposed to tesla yeah and they're all overweight to tesla and they're all 10 to 12 percent of tesla and they all did fantastically well but that that's not really you just needed one of them right did you really need just to have one and buy three times the amount there's no point in spreading your investment and saying hey i'm diversified over managers and i've got three different managers and they're all growthy they're all buying the same stocks just in different portions and mm. we see that uh, n- honestly we see it 80 percent of the time when when portfolios come in they go oh we're, we're really happy with these what's the point you know um and a lot of times you can go and buy the s&p 500 index fund for you know Ten bips, and you're doing the same thing.
1: So. so that naive diversification is the is the word, isn't it? Similar to someone will come in and say, "I got all four banks. That means I'm well diversified across the banking
0: sector." Yeah, market risk, specific risk, yeah, all that fun stuff. Um, gents, I feel like this is a really good primer on portfolio construction, just covering off like the absolute essentials. Maybe you guys can come back next month. And we can talk more specifics around maybe different different funds. You know, something that we could talk about is like rising rates, um, how you use that defensive alts bucket, some of the manager questions and, and interviews you do with them because I know you guys are meeting them like every day. I feel like every day I walk in the office, Jamie's uh, in an interview with a, a manager. Drew's writing something about it, uh, a manager too. So um, I think this is a really good primer. So if people want to find out more about you guys, head to the Bottle Partners website, right? Yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah, go there and um, uh, give us a call. We're always, as you can see, we both chat all day, every day. So easiest (laughs) way is just give us a call and we're happy to have have a chat. Sure.
1: Some good videos and podcasts on there we can plug, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, there are too. Yeah, I'll put I'll put links in the show notes to the the podcast you guys are doing, I'm interviewing fundies as well. So occasionally you guys go live as well, which um, I'm told is, I have it on good authority, is a is a, a spectacle. So uh... <laughs> the word spectacle is right. Yeah, it's definitely. a spectacle. <laughs> <laughs> no, great. All right, Jamie, uh, Jamie Nemesis and Andrew Meredith from Water Partners. Thanks for taking the time out to join me on the show today.
1: Thank you.